0: time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nish Nikolic and my guest today is Professor Blake McKimmy, who is a Associate Dean Academic in the Faculty of Health and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Queensland. Blake won a Faculty Teaching Excellence Award in 2010 and a University of Queensland Teaching Excellence Award in 2016. He led a team that won the AAUT Higher Education Teacher of the Year Award in 2019 and received the EdX Prize in 2018. He currently teaches a large introductory psychology course and a second year elective about psychology and law. His research focuses on jury decision making, including the influence of gender-based stereotypes and the influence of in the and the influence of different modes of evidence presentation. He's also interested in group membership and attitude behavior relations and how group members influence thinking about the self. He is a lead instructor in the award-winning course Crime 101X and the Psych 1030X Introduction to Developmental Social and Clinical Psychology X Series program on four courses on edX.org edX.org. Today is a really interesting conversation that I'll have with Blake about this idea of understanding biases that occur in courtrooms with jurors in particular, how the architecture can go out and add to these biases or differences in the way that we perceive uh, the court proceedings as jurors, and also how evidence um is presented and how that can also have an effect. Uh, lots of topics discussed here. Blake really knows this space exceptionally well, and it was an absolute honour to have him as part of the podcast and you know, teaching myself and hopefully yourself through through this conversation. What are the stereotypes, the biases, the heuristics, and uh, other? you know influences that we are subject to as human beings and you know one day possibly as even jurors i hope you enjoy this episode blake a big thank you for coming onto the show today i'm really excited to talk about a, a real interest piece for for me because it really to me is an exemplar of human biases and how we can learn from these and and you know Uh, appreciate ourselves and others in in a way that we maybe haven't considered before so excited to talk about jury decision making you know influence of gender biased uh, sorry based stereotypes and you know potentially even the influence of different modes of evidence presentation so thank you for coming on to the show Uh, thanks for having me nish Look, I'm not really sure where to start with this because there, there, there's a lot in there, but maybe if I open up to, to to you about how you got into this space and then maybe lead from from there as to you know how we look at these, whether it's the the jury decision making or the you know presenting evidence, um, gender biases, how they play in because I'm sure that all is a big part of the you know, the legal world and um, probably also feeds into how we also do life in different ways.
1: Yeah, so it's a bit of a circuitous route into the topic. Uh, I actually started off at university studying law, psychology, and computer science. And um, sort of what happened is after a few years, I had to decide whether to you know, continue on with my psychology or finish my law degree. And I actually ended up continuing on with psychology, never quite got back to the law degree. So I've kind of always had a bit of an interest you know, in both of those areas and could sort of see how they intersected. Um, and when I started my PhD, which was in social psychology, uh, we had a visiting researcher from Canada and she was interested in um, expert testimony and gender stereotypes around expert testimony. And so I started working with her and pretty much ever since then, I've just continued working in the area of uh, trying to understand what are the sorts of things that might influence jurors and how they make decisions, you know, it, you know, from the whole sort of perspective of decision-making uh, by jurors. And more recently, we've kind of extended that to look at how investigators and police are influenced by the same sorts of stereotypes. Um, it's just part of that big picture of looking, you know, where where is it along the decision-making processes? Because there's lots of different levels in the criminal justice system where quite important consequential decisions are made. It's not just at the trial, but it's also at the investigation stage and decisions about prosecution um, and then you know, what happens in the jury room as well. And you know, because all of those people are humans, uh, they're influenced by the, the same sorts of stereotypes and cognitive biases and decision making. So that's kind of how I got into it. But I think you know, one thing I'd say to sort of preface all the comments that I'll make today is, um you know, this, you know, my interest in understanding the sorts of things that influence jurors is not about sort of pointing out, how bad juries are or jurors are. They're just people, just like anyone else. And it's really about, you know, what is it that we could do that might help jurors make decisions? Um, and some of those things are sort of structural systems with the, the justice system. Some of them are to do with cognitive biases. Um, and the research has shown pretty clearly that it doesn't really matter whether you have jurors who are not trained in the law or whether you have judges. You know, I've got a lot of training experience. Mostly, it's fair to say that the same sorts of biases influence both types of decision makers. So, you know, the, the the challenge for us is to understand the complexity of these decisions, the sorts of things that influence people, and how can we overcome some of those things, or at least mitigate some of the influences that we might not like to see there.
0: And can you take us through some of the the primary cognitive biases that you know humans have as jury members? Because obviously, it's a very specific type of context that we're in as well where yeah. we're being asked to you know, uh, actually make a judgment on on you know particular set of circumstances and you know from probabilities and so on so maybe you can talk us through that a little bit
1: so there's probably i mean you can think about it as two sort of general sets of of challenges one is at the individual level um where you've got individuals sort of yeah, you know, processing information and thinking about the evidence as it's presented and also all the non-evidentiary things as well, like what do people look like um, that has an effect on them. Then you've got the group decision-making part where you then get the group dynamics and the sorts of biases that affect groups and collective decision-making. Um, so at the individual level, you know, the thing about jury trials is they're, um, they sort of fall into that space where people inherently are going to have some challenges because... The cases where there's really clear evidence that somebody's done something uh, illegal, they don't tend to go to trial, right? People tend to—they uh, know there's a lot of strong evidence against them, so they try to reach, you know, some type of plea deal, you know, or they just plead guilty because there's, um, you know, an amazing amount of evidence against them. The ones where it's really weak, uh, there's actually quite strong filtering through the criminal justice system, you know, so weak cases don't tend to actually make it to trial. Um, You know, for example, they might not be. The investigation might not sort of result in it being passed to prosecution, or the prosecution might decide not to uh, proceed with the prosecution once they've got the brief of evidence. So there are multiple points where really weak cases will be filtered out, Um, and there are some challenges around that too, because what leads to the perception that a case is weak is, to some extent, not not fully. But to some extent, the extent to which the case is seen as stereotypical or not, you know, because if you've got a victim or complainant who's not behaving in stereotypical ways. Um, and so like a lot of a lot of the sorts of cases we look at as examples are sort of involve sexual violence and you know sexual assault. And there's strong sort of expectations around or stereotypes around how complainants should behave and what they should do. Now, these expectations are not you know, based on reality. They're just misperceptions about how people should react. And so when you have cases that don't match these expectations, um, you know, they, they seem to be less credible, you know, or people, even if they personally believe the complainant, project ahead and think, well, the next decision maker's not going to, so there's no point in proceeding with the case. So those sorts of cases fall out a bit, you know, at a high rate as well. So what jurors are left with is typically the uh, cases where there's contested evidence or or it's ambiguous. And they're the sorts of decisions where, um, because they're hard to reason through, it's hard just to sort of look at all the evidence and weigh up the pros and cons and arrive at what an economist might call a rational decision, Um, whereas, you know, I'm not sure there's any truly rational decisions. Um, But, you know, you can't sort of work through the evidence systematically in those cases and arrive at an outcome. There's going to be a level of uncertainty and so the way a, a decision maker will get over that threshold to be to feel sufficiently confident you know is to you know use their pre-existing knowledge and expectations and that's where the biases and the stereotypes live is you know it's your you know essentially your mental model to understand the world you know how you represent how things typically happen what people are like um all of those sorts of models help you interpret what would otherwise be ambiguous information Uh, which is normal and functional that's actually that's how we get by on a day-to-day basis it helps us make choices but the issue is they're just general rules so they're they're often mostly correct and they and it doesn't matter if we get it wrong in a criminal justice setting uh the consequences are obviously a bit more severe for getting it wrong so what can happen is when we apply sort of our understanding of the world or our stereotypes and schemas um to make sense of the ambiguous information, we can, you know, incorrectly weight the credibility of certain evidence. Um, the other part we we have difficulty with sometimes is making sense of probability. So there's lots of lots of evidence. Um, when some cases, like forensic evidence, will be presented in terms of probabilities, and we know from research that people have challenges when reasoning with probabilities. It's not something we're very familiar with, and it's not something we're necessarily very accurate at. And we fall back to heuristics. And so we'll either vastly underestimate or overestimate um, what a probability means when we're asked to interpret it. And so this could be, you know, um, when we're presented with DNA evidence and the likelihood of a random match, you know, like one in 10 million or whatever, you know, and we're trying to interpret, does that mean we should feel confident that this sample matches the uh, defendant, you know? And so there's all these issues with reasoning, with statistics where, um, people struggle and so they'll kind of fall back on simple decision rules to help them make sense of that type of evidence.
0: And I'm I'm assuming that uh, these are some of the areas that jurors will actually be targeted on in that a good barrister will often try and skew statistics for example or probabilities in a certain way using certain languages to uh, you know in, in many ways maybe exploit such um uh, or maybe it's not even the right word but you know use the the, these heuristics of, of humans when we are overloaded or we find it difficult to to um you know understand how to categorize ambiguous evidence that jurors would often be actually placed in these situations or, or um, purposefully confused even potentially um, to, to try and create more ambiguity and go back to these kind of general rules, you know, heuristic schemas that we use.
1: So the, I mean, this is an interesting thing about um, the criminal justice system in Australia, and particularly jury trials, and, and it's the same in England and America. Um, we have an adversarial system. And the idea is, you know, each side puts forward their best arguments and we try and sort of discover the truth about what happened that way. Um, some other jurisdictions have an inquisitorial system where it's more about sort of the court sort of guiding the questioning and the goal is to, you know, work towards, you know, discovering uh, the truth in a different way. It's not about combat, you know, combat of of evidence and ideas. It's much more about working towards uh, uncovering what's happened. So if you're a... Uh, juror, you know, this creates a, a difficult environment because you've got two sides and they're each trying to advance quite opposing, contradictory accounts of what happened. So they're not working necessarily together to help a juror understand ambiguous information. They've actually got different agendas. So the prosecution's trying to create the most persuasive case possible, you know, within the bounds of the laws around evidence. They'll call experts and, you know, um, you know, present... You know and have witnesses and present sort of uh exhibits all this sort of stuff defense has a different objective you know they might have evidence that directly contradicts um you know what the prosecution's presenting but they don't have to convince the jury that the defendant is innocent because right? that's actually not the point of a trial you, you don't have to prove your innocence the prosecution has, has to prove the defendant is guilty to whatever the standard is for the trial so for a criminal trial it's beyond reasonable doubt and for a civil trial um we have a very small number of Um, jury civil trials in Australia, it's actually the vast minority of trials. You just have to prove to balance the probabilities, which is sort of 50-50. So the prosecution is trying to get over that threshold. All the defence has to do is confuse the matter, you know, and and sort of throw some red herrings in, um, you know, make you sort of question the expert evidence. uh, And so they can kind of present, um, you know, Really, just conflicting information without necessarily having to convince you the person is innocent, they just have to make you less sure that the defendant is guilty, and so they're actually creating that sort of perfect situation for people to have to rely on some type of pre-existing stereotypes or pre-existing knowledge to make sense of what's going on.
0: And what are some of the pre-existing stereotypes that we hold, and, and and the differences between how genders might do that too?
1: Um, so uh, it depends on the sorts of offenses you might be talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, for example, you know, if we're talking about, um, sexual assault, you know, the stereotype about that type of offense is that, uh, the typical assault happens, you know, the, the perpetrator is a stranger, um, you know, and that assault will sort of happen using some sort of violence, um, you know, typically sort of, you know, outside, um, often it's sort of the evening, you know, while the the complainant victim is sort of walking back to their car or something like that. That's the sort of thing you might see represented, you know, in media a lot. Um, and that's when you, if you ask research participants, you know, just tell me what you think the typical assault is like. They'll describe something like that, you know. So stranger attacks, uses violence, uh, normally a blitz attack. Um, and then the issue becomes uh, who was the perpetrator? You know, like what evidence is there that this person was the perpetrator? Unfortunately, the most common assault is actually an assault by somebody known to the complainant, um, and so this is you know often in the situ in sort of some kind of social setting. It's an acquaintance. Um, you know, could people could have been you know at a party together, socializing, drinking, dancing, um, or even have been on a date or in a relationship. You know, and, and so, you know, sexual assault happens in relationships too. And so that looks very different from people's stereotype. So it's numerically much more likely that it'll be an acquaintance assault than it would be a stranger assault. So the most cases that jurors get faced with are the acquaintance assaults. And so it's mismatched with their expectations uh, about, you know, how assault tends to happen. And then there's tied up with that expectations about, um, what a victim survivor should behave like, you know, that they should go to the police immediately, you know, that they should, you know, clearly uh, tell the uh, assailant no and fight back, you know, and that they should cooperate with police and be emotional because it's a really traumatic experience. Now, you know, the research on this is 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 pretty clear that they're actually not necessarily that common responses. You know, often people actually have flat affect, you know, flat emotion in response to these sorts of traumas because it's a way of um it's a way of managing what's happened, you know, and or and you know, and by the time it gets to trial too, complainants have had time to sort of prepare themselves and and be, you know, um, their objective is much more about making sure they get their story across, you know, so they might appear to be, you know, quite controlled, you know, which kind of is at odds with what the lay perceiver will think somebody who's been through a traumatic experience should be like. You know, and so all of these sort of violations of expectations can can lead people to think, well, maybe this person isn't actually telling me the truth. You know, maybe, maybe they're making it up or you know um you know they've changed their mind about what happened and this is the problem because the issue in the most common case is not about who the perpetrator is often that's not the question the question is whether there was consent or not and that's you know that's not anything that forensic evidence you know can easily provide um you know it's it's about a state of mind you know in two different people you know and the so then it becomes a story of he said she said and you often have quite conflicting versions of events and so people look at the behavior of the, the people in the in you know in the context that they're being asked to evaluate and they're using their stereotypes to understand that behavior. And so that's kind of how and, and those stereotypes are very gendered, you know, because it's all about um you know we, we think the sorts of beliefs that are really influential are not just misperceptions about uh, sexual assault and, and victims, but also misperceptions about consent. You know, people have um, a lot of experience with consensual sex, less experience with sexual assault. And so they've got quite well-formed schemas or stereotypes about how, you know, consensual sex, um, you know, plays out. You know, what are the sorts of behaviours people do? There's a stereotype that agreeing to go upstairs for coffee is a signal that you're consenting when it's just you're agreeing to go upstairs for coffee. You know, and so there's all these sort of unwritten rules to consent that people think indicate consent, um, and, you know, they'll apply that to try and understand what the state of mind of the complainant is and what the state of mind of the defendant is. And those those rules come from our gendered stereotypes about people's roles in sexual relationships. Um, and so it is, you know, it, it's quite challenging in those cases to um, have people think, you know, beyond those stereotypic expectations about behaviour.
0: Sounds like it's very complicated because the schema that we are thinking is likely to be the case in a sexual assault using this as the example uh, is almost always different it's not an unknown person it's not an attack there, there's a lot of ambiguity already uh, in it that kind of shifts our stereotype of how it should be and you know poses questions and that's where that sort of questioning around you know does the going upstairs for a coffee Uh, uh, mean something you know and is there gendered differences about how from your research and 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 your colleagues how men and women view this differently is there is there on an average sort of basis are jurors selected on these bases uh, differently because there are biases between the two um
1: yeah so jury selection is an interesting problem i'll come back to that in a sec these so are there sort of gender differences in how men and women perceive sexual assault the research is pretty pretty consistent that there, there is sort of a big main effect of gender um so uh overall men and women tend to sort of evaluate victims or you know uh, survivor victims who have behaved stereotypically more positively than those who have behaved counter stereotypically like you still get the effect of the stereotypes but they have different thresholds so Um, men uh, generally um, have more negative evaluations of victim survivors than women. And part of that effect we think is to do with that the most common gender for victim survivors is a woman and the most common gender for a perpetrator is a man. And so there's there's an element of um, identification with the two different roles of perpetrator and victim survivor. So if you're a man, you're more likely to identify with the perpetrator. And if you're a woman, you're more likely to identify with the victim survivor. And so your perceptions are going to be more aligned with those two different roles. So women will be more positive about um, and believe victim stories more, whereas men will be a little bit more sympathetic to perpetrators. And part of that is you're sharing that gender identity. You're in the same group and that we we generally have a preference for more positive evaluations of in-group members. Um, and part of it also is that, well, I guess it comes out of those sort of just world beliefs, you know, there but for the grace of, you know, whatever deity you, you want, there go I, you know, so if you're a man, you know, you think, well, that, that could have been me. And if you're a woman, you think that could have been me as the, the victim. And so, you know, there's, there's mm. a gendered tendency to view it differently. There men have a, a higher threshold for deciding that something sexual assault compared to women. Uh, so there's that. Now the issue with juriselection, selection, um, So there's limited avenues for uh, lawyers to influence the composition of the jury in Australia. Like we don't have a process where people can, um, you know, like in America, you can give questionnaires to potential jurors. You can go and survey uh, members of the community, you know, where they're going to select jurors from. You can, uh, you know, in some, some cases, people will hire consultants who will look up people's social media presence as they're being called. So you can potentially object, you know, based on are they a member of the NRA or, you know, or whatever, you know. And so in Australia, all you get is um, a a panel of people who are called in, um, a selection of those get called randomly to go into a courtroom uh, for a particular trial, and then there's sort of a lottery process where a number is is selected, and that, that person's number, they walk from, sort of the marshalling area at the back of the the courtroom up to the jury box. And you can object before they put their hand on either the Bible or the alternate. Um, You can swear on uh, an alternate source. You don't have to swear on the Bible. But until you put your hand on there, you can be objected to. And really, the only information people have about potential jurors is what they look like. So you can kind of work out their age. Um, You can have a guess at the gender too. Um, and then you've also got what's on the electoral roll. And that's the only information lawyers have, so they'll know what your sort of description of your profession is and what suburb you're from. And so, really, gender is one of the few things um, you might be able to have a a go at selecting on. Uh, The risk, and um, having been on the jury and, uh, you know, listened to... People sort of accounts of the selection process. The risk is, though, if you, you look like you're trying to stack the jury, the jury is not sort of uh, uh, ignorant of that. And so they might feel like you're trying to influence how they're going to decide the case. And so the risk of sort of one side, you know, only trying to, you know, objecting to all the women, for example, as, as defence might want to, um, you know, it could sort of, Uh, create the suspicion that you're that side, the defence is trying to stack the jury. And there are some benevolent beliefs around gender that men and women subscribe to, but that men believe more strongly. And that's that protective belief around women. So these are sort of the traditional stereotypes around gender roles, uh, that men have to be protective of women, they're pretty outdated, just to be clear. It's not, I'm not advocating for these beliefs, um, you know, but that, you know, that men have this protective role, um, you know, and that women need to be looked after because they're, you know, they're more de- gentle and delicate. So if you are sort of selecting just men onto the jury and you raise suspicion that maybe you're trying to influence what they're doing, um, and you've, you know, perhaps selected um, men of a particular generation who are most likely going to believe these beliefs, it could actually backfire, you know, and, and where they'll become, you know, protective of the complainant, you know, the the victim survivor and, and actually, you know, not be very sympathetic to the defense's side of the story. So, you know, I think, you know, if you're a lawyer and you're listening to this, what should you do around jury selection? I'd just be really cautious because the research shows that overall, because you have the group deliberation, individual juror characteristics like gender um, tend to come out in the wash. You know, Probably in the sexual assault matters, gender composition of the jury is one of the few times where individual characteristics might influence the outcome. But the group deliberation phase, um, you know, where people have to sort of share and justify their perspectives, you know, is a mechanism for getting rid of some of the effect of these biases.
0: And and so obviously gender, profession, suburb is what we allow for here in Australia um and you know that could be uh, uh lack of a better word um uh selected on or manipulated on but really th- there's not that much to work on because you you we don't really know how this plays out you know in the in the Australian context there might be some individual differences but as you say if you stack it too too much um that could potentially change how the group dynamic works rather than on the individual and the, the, yep. there's no research to kind of say you know if it's a 12 person jury you know you stack it you know seven to five um yeah that's uh, right uh, we we just don't know you know is, is the tipping point seven five is it eight eight four um you know at what point does it become a problem and and you know so it still creates at least what we see as as fairness or, or, or it's representative because we don't give enough detail we don't do polling and the rest of it, like what what it sounds like the wild wild west in the yeah. u.s yeah
1: and yeah and law reform commissions have looked at jury selection and you know there's some argument that actually we should limit the number of challenges that lawyers can make so you, you get a limited set already but you know that we should really only have those ones where you can challenge for for courts you know where there's an obvious um uh, potentially biasing thing like you know, one of the jurors is the neighbour of the defendant or something like that, you know, or or a distant relative. Like, of course, those jurors should not be impanelled. But um, at the moment, you know, in, in every jurisdiction, you can challenge because you don't like the look of them. You don't have to give them a reason, you know. And so there's some argument you should actually get rid of those altogether because um, in most cases, it makes very little difference what the composition is. And uh, sometimes it's counterintuitive, you know, um, if you're trying to sort of make the jury more conviction prone, you might think you want to, you know, put older jurors on, but in fact, you should put younger jurors on, you know. And so there's all sorts of counterintuitive effects of things like age and gender. And the, the challenge is that's all based on research around what typically happens. And if you're trying to apply those sort of large group averages to any individual jury you're selecting, there's not a one-to-one correlation between how any single person will decide a case versus what research shows on average is the tendency. And mm. so, you know, it's a risky strategy. You're much better off just having a really convincing case with evidence. Yeah. You know, that's – and and we know that's actually the biggest predictor of jurors' decisions is the strength of the evidence. And so, you know, if you're investing effort in a case, you're much better off investing it in, you know – uh, if you're the prosecution mounting, you know, a very strong case, and if you're the defence countering the evidence that's going to be raised by the prosecution,
0: it sounds it sounds very. I mean, it's heartening to know as well because it says that we've got a good legal system, but it also tells us that if you do, if you've got a very limited uh, demographic information uh, about the jurors, um, you know. It, it tells us that the biases in the group deliberation will come down to things like personality and so on, which you can't necessarily select for because you don't know you're, you're, you're going based on maybe quickly age. Cause you can see them gender um, you know, that you can generally see that for most mm. um, you might have profession from the electoral role suburb that gives you something, but really there's such large categories that, that uh, you know, you're, you're not able to sway it too much. Um, can you talk us a little bit about the group deliberation part in yep. terms of the you know how how that might play in and biases that might that 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 show up and that you know of from the literature there
1: so there's uh like i think there's sort of uh, a bit of a an expectation that groups will make better decisions than individuals um and uh you know that's sort of I think people's sort of anecdotal expectations and experiences um, to some extent that can, that can be true, but there are biases um, around group decision-making. So for example, you know, people might be familiar with the concept of groupthink. Now the evidence for groupthink, which is this, a form of decision making that happens in high pressure groups where they tend to sort of make bad decisions because, you know, they feel under threat and under pressure to arrive at a decision and they don't sort of adequately consider alternatives and look at the evidence. And so, you know, it's, and, and nobody contradicts anyone. They kind of coalesce around a leader because of the sense of threat. Um, and this was, you know, proposed in the seventies and it's been used to explain a whole bunch of poor decision making um, like the Bay of pigs fiasco the uh, shuttle disasters and a whole range of other sort of high-level um, decisions that led to bad outcomes. So the evidence for groupthink is is pretty mixed, you know, when you look at the research, and there's a few different explanations for it, but there's a more general problem with groups, which groupthink kind of exempt, uh, is an exemplar of, which is sort of the focus on common shared positions. Um, and so, you know, group decision-making can encourage people to really... Um, essentially share the information that they think other people have, because it's a way of building common ground, um, you know, and showing you a good group member, you know, that, look, we think alike, you know, we, you know, um, evaluate this in the same way. And so you can end up with a problem called the hidden profile problem. And that's where, you know, group members might share, say, three bits of information. If You've got six group members, three bits of information are the same, and that's what they spend their time talking about but each group member might also have another three bits of information that's unique to them. And that if they shared that, that arrive at a different decision, but because they only focus on the bit that they all know about, um, they just reinforce each other's um, shared information. right? So that you, you kind of get a biased sampling of the information from everyone in the group. There are some strategies you can use to help sort of circumvent these tendencies to seek consensus too early. So, uh, one of the things you can do is sort of make people aware that there might be other information that not everyone knows. And so uh, you encourage people to share things that they think people wouldn't know. You just explicitly make that part of the decision-making process. The devil's advocate procedure is another way that people have used, you know, business decision-making settings to try and improve group decisions where you have one person whose role it is is to challenge the group decision. You know, so you make it normative, for somebody to take an opposing view, but they have to try and do it relatively genuinely and use the evidence so they just can't be dismissed as being oppositional, you know. And so the, the challenge with these sorts of techniques is for ongoing groups, like in businesses, they can undermine group function, right, because it makes the group less harmonious, uh, which is why people seek consensus information because it <laughs> feels good, right, and it's harmonious and we're collectively in this together, right? Right. But, you know, if you've got somebody who's being devil's advocate, um, you know, that can sort of put a fly in the ointment in the group and create a bit of conflict, like informational conflict. Um, But, you know, some of the research we've done shows it leads to objectively better decisions when you have that informational devil's advocate role. You know, so they're not being rude to each other or anything like that. They're just putting opposing viewpoints. So the challenge then uh, for businesses is to not undermine group function. You know, so to make it normative, to to see it as a valuable part of the group. For a jury, they're less worried about the ongoing group function because the jury comes together for a single case. Mm. And most cases are so sort of about five days. And so, you know, the point is you're not trying to build a cohesive team that's going to work together over multiple years. You know, you're trying to you're trying to do a single decision. And so, you know, introducing some um you know opposing viewpoints uh, on all of that can have these benefits of approving the decision making and then the the you know undermining you know the cohesion of the of the group is actually or the jury is probably less consequential in that setting and so i think you know encouraging that sort of strategy um and that's something for example the four person of the jury can encourage they can make it normative so there's a, you know the four person um there's a perception that the four person runs the jury and and kind of has an oversized influence on the outcome. That's not borne out by the research. They they certainly talk more, but they don't have an oversized influence on on the outcome. Uh, but can you what tell they us can- more
0: about what that is uh, the four person. I'm I was sorry. about to ask yep. how, how does a jury work when they go you know and deliberate. Well, what's that process actually look like?
1: So, um, what happens? So, and well, when you say when they deliberate, this is the interesting question um when do they deliberate because there's a deliberation phase of the trial which is uh once all the evidence is presented but the the anecdotal evidence is pretty consistent that jurors start deliberating from the first time they get together in the room you know so they'll oh, often be oh. sent to the room for breaks like you have to have comfort breaks during a trial you know where you know people need to use the bathroom or get a drink or whatever um, you have lunch breaks and all of that and you know the jury will be instructed to um not sort of discuss the case or arrive at a decision yet until they've heard all the evidence, but But, jurors being people,
0: human nature,
1: they've just heard some amazing stuff on the stand from a witness. They want to talk to somebody about it, you know, and so they talk to each other. And so they're already sort of working through the evidence. Um, One of the first things they're asked to do, um, you know, when they are first sent back to the the jury room is to nominate a four person. And typically that's the person who sits at the head of the table um, and, Often it's a man, you know, so the research says men over overrepresented as four people. Um, and their role is to really be the spokesperson of the jury. And so they will sort of um, convey questions to the judge. Um, they will um, deliver the verdict at the end. Uh, and they kind of basically represent the jury, uh, but they have to represent the jury. They, they can't speak, you know, against what the jury sure. says. Um, they're also... Um, In many jurisdictions, there's sort of some information for jurors about how to conduct things, and the foreperson is encouraged to sort of manage, you know, provide some management of the deliberations to make sure everybody gets to contribute. And that's really where they can come out and make sure opposing viewpoints get considered. You know, that would be a foreperson who's really functioning well, so not going straight to asking for a verdict, Mm -hmm. right? So some, some juries operate by just polling to try and see how many people agree on a verdict already. Like, so we might be in a jury together. We've just finished the evidence. or maybe we've been talking about it the whole time. We've just heard the rest of the evidence. And so we walk in and say, all right, let's have a vote. You know, who who thinks he's guilty? Who thinks he's innocent? We might do that anonymously, or we might do it with a show of hands. And then we work out that, oh, Nesh is the only one who thinks he's innocent. We all, everyone else thinks he's guilty, but we've got to be unanimous. So let's convince Nesh, you know? So, the job becomes getting to the number of um, guilty verdicts we need rather than evaluating the evidence to see how the evidence matches the different verdict options so that latter style is more evidence-driven deliberation. so you don't start with a verdict you start with everyone working together to consider all the evidence and then figure out how it fits in with the verdict options you've been given by the judge so that that's the better form of deliberations and you're not rushing to seek consensus. You're looking mm. to evaluate everything. And to do that properly, what you'd want to do as a four person is make sure everybody gets to have a say and challenge, you know, in a constructive way, some of the shared perspectives. Like imagine if it was not that, you know, you know, if that wasn't the explanation for things happening in that way. Or what if that person was actually not the person who we thought it was? And so you work through sort of some opposing viewpoints. So you don't obviously want to consider like ridiculous perspectives. Like Absolutely. imagine it was space aliens that, you know, came and robbed the bank. Like that's just a a highly improbable thing. It's not mm. something you would consider, you know, to get to the reasonable level of, um, you know, to get beyond reasonable doubt. But you do want to sort of consider reasonable alternative explanations uh, to work through the evidence, and then you might end up discarding them and and then going, you know, with the perspective that certain people have put forward. So it's all just about sort of systematically working through the evidence together. Different people will remember different bits of the evidence, uh, and that's why those sort of larger juries of 12, like we have in Australia for criminal cases, are better because you've got more people to remember more of the evidence. Mm-hmm. In the US, they can, it, it varies, but some jurisdictions have six people for criminal trials
0: it's uh quite quite um interesting to hear that because i can see the the uh, influence that a four person can have and uh, uh, it's quite interesting because they don't necessarily have any training uh, in, in, in doing that they, they're just elected by the group and all of a sudden it's quite a an important way in in have these conversations take place, but they're doing it for the first time. You know, that no one's there to say, you know, at least as a starting point, you know, here are the 10 principles we're going to do. And then four person can kind of continue one. So it might be, you know, everyone gets to go out and summarize, you know, how they've heard the evidence and give, you know, three points um, that are, you know, shared and three points that are maybe unique or whatever it might be to get you know, from my viewpoint you know, psychological flexibility you know variance and perspectives that that allows us to then be much more objective rather than follow our heuristics and and you know stereotypes so you know someone who comes in and says well you know just out of curiosity you know where are we all standing roughly at the moment um and and, and getting a whole lot of you know guilty or not um, it's like that might appear to be efficient in that who do we need to get over the line and convince and then we've got all of a sudden you know uh, 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 a bit of um, you know, social, social pressure, pressure and, yeah. um, yep. to, to, to go along with it you know that we all know about with with um, conformity studies yep. and the like absolutely um, you know? versus going out and, and trying to do the job of what a jury is to be much more objective um, and if you wow. that's a huge position to take the full person, yeah,
1: if you're like a minority of one, like if you're the the holdout juror, yeah. um you know from all those conformity studies that that's a hugely risky position. You know that the pressure to conform goes up dramatically if you're the sole um, dissident. And so um and it and it's kind of made well, worse is kind of maybe the wrong word, but it's not helped. um, so for some offenses, after a certain period of time, if there's still only one juror holding out, you can take a majority of 11 to 1. And so, like, the pressure, you know, the pressure's on that, you know, you've got to either get on board or we can just ignore you, you know, and so it's just about the verdict, right? So the, you know, that's why you don't want to necessarily go straight to a verdict vote when you come in as a jury. And the other the other problem, apart from the conformity issue, You know, is um, confirmation bias. Like I think, you know, if you Hmm. commit publicly to a verdict, um, it makes it harder to change. You know, because you might hear other perspectives, and you're now viewing them through the lens of like, oh, I might, you know, I'm going to take on board the bits that support what I already said. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's it's kind of risky doing the verdict-driven style. Um, And so if anyone's ever a four-person, you know, you should really kind of resist that and just try and, you know. Canvas the room for all
0: the opinions first. And in Australia, is there a requirement that all 12 are in agreement? You said that in certain cases it might be 11, but is that how it usually works that you need all 12 it's, it's, people? It's,
1: yeah, it's normally unanimous from um, what was unanimous for pretty much all offences until relatively recently. Um, but for some offences, uh, it's majority, um, so either 11 to 1 or 12 to 10. Depends on the jurisdiction and the nature of the offence. Uh, or after a certain period of time, if the jury can't reach a unanimous verdict, they can accept one after being given a direction to reconsider. Mm-hmm. So these sorts of changes were brought about to try and deal with the issue of the rogue juror. You know, the one holdout who's just not being reasonable, um, which, you know, depending on, Hey, interpret what getting to beyond reasonable doubt means. You know, does that mean each individual has to be beyond reasonable doubt, in which case, you know, everyone should be in agreement. You should have a unanimous verdict. Or does it mean the jury overall just has to generally agree? You know, and so is is eleven to one appropriate? What the research shows is there's actually very few cases where there's the holdout is only one person. Or two people. It's the vast minority of hung juries is a single person holding out. Often it's more of a split like seven to five, right. you know, where there's a genuine disagreement in the jury. You know, and, and individuals can have genuinely held um, positions that disagree with the rest of the jury. You know? Sometimes not necessarily the case. So we've had a few high profile cases with single jurors holding out, like in Queensland, we had the trial of the former premier Joe Bioki Peterson here. Um, a few decades ago now, but it turned out one of the jurors was actually a member of his political party, you know, and so that person kind of held out for, you know, political reasons. Um, so, you know, I think those those instances are pretty rare um, and generally the unanimous verdict, you know, I think, and the research is consistent with this, does produce better outcomes because what it does is forces jurors to have to listen to each other Mm, mm. Because if with a majority verdict if you you know if you've only got one person holding out you know you've got over the threshold that's fine i don't have to listen to your arguments anymore whereas with unanimous and this is the whole point about considering alternative viewpoints with a unanimous verdict we really have to make sure everyone's had a go sharing their opinion
0: function yeah yeah yeah, absolutely you
1: know and i think that's actually a really good thing because they're really important decisions um Mm. and they're very consequential both ways like you know a defendant could go to jail in the criminal trial, which is yeah. when juries are normally called, they could go to jail, you know, lose their job, a whole range of different, you know, outcomes taken away from their family. And for um uh you know victim survivors in, in sexual assault matters or, you know, or people who are victims of crime more generally, you know, if somebody um if a perpetrator is acquitted, but they actually did do it, so the jury makes them a mistake mistake or if you want to characterize it as a mistake or they just couldn't get over the threshold of confidence It's probably a better way of thinking about it um you know that's consequential for victims as well you know like their sense of safety their feeling that justice was done the community's confidence in the criminal justice system so Mm -hmm. either way mistakes both ways um have a big effect on people's lives and so it is really important to get it right um you know, and make sure that whoever the decision maker is, so a lot of decisions are made just by judges as well, like at magistrates level or county court level, um, that those decisions are, you know, uh, are as um, accurate or based on the evidence as much as they can be.
0: Like I am mindful of time, and I do want to still ask that question around the uh, the different modes of, uh, presenting evidence and how that plays in are you able to at least speak a little bit briefly yeah, on yeah absolutely because uh, i know yep. we need to wrap up soon
1: um i've got a little bit more time i think we might be having a daylight saving time uh, okay okay yep.
0: oh okay so okay yep. wonderful then oh yep. no my apologies that i i was starting to get nervous going oh my goodness there's so no. much more to talk about <laughs> no
1: I think, uh, I think that's daylight saving um, time. Good. Yep. good Good. good okay. Yep. okay it's all good so modes of evidence um yeah, so there's two issues in talking about modes of evidence. One is to do with how evidence is presented in court. Um, so that's one thing I'll take up the words about. too. and then the other one is um, how we do research on juries, which is really about the mode of of study or simulation, if you like. So for the first issue, um, there's so there's a lot of accommodations uh, that are being introduced, which are really positive to support um victim survivors tell their stories you know so like video recorded evidence there's protections for child witnesses you know they can give remote testimony you know from a uh, a room linked via video and all these things are really uh positive you know in in terms of supporting people who have been through traumatic um experiences you know through this through the offenders actions um because Turning up in the courtroom can be really stressful. It's it's not a you know, it's an unfamiliar environment, particularly for, you know, if you think if you're a child going there, you know, it's very confronting, you know, and the you know, the perpetrator may be in the courtroom there. Um and so, you know, all, all of that is uh things that are gonna interfere with your ability to tell your story and that are gonna be quite traumatic to experience again. So, you know, one of the challenges though is that giving your evidence via these sort of different modes, you know, it can have consequences for how people perceive it. And so we have done a little bit of work with, you know, the size of the video display that's played in court, you know, whether it's pre-record or a live link, um, because, you know, one of the things we know about um, stereotypes, you know, is, is they're often, um, you know, they come to mind when cues to those stereotypes are particularly salient. And visual prominence, so the size of, you know, someone on a screen can increase the salience of cues to the stereotype. You know, we start thinking about them more as a, you know, a child and then our stereotypes about inaccurate stereotypes about children's unreliability, you know, in terms of their memory um, and their their ability to be influenced by adults in their lives. You know, so they're actually relatively inaccurate stereotypes about children's memory. Um, But, you know, we've got some evidence that shows that larger sort of displays make those stereotypes more available in people's minds because it's more obvious to you that they're a child. And this is consistent with some of the work that's come out of um, the persuasion literature, you know, where you look at how messages might persuade people and, you know, with most persuasive messages, you've got the content of the message. And then you've got all of the stuff around the message that's not to do with the content that might affect its persuasion. So, you know, is the person giving us the message attractive, you know, or are they an expert, you know, do they look like they know what they're talking about? Um, all of those sorts of non-content-based bits of messages. And, you know, we know that, um, you know, more complex messages uh, you know, and, you know, you it will go, you know, things that might be affected by stereotypes are better presented in text because it's easier to comprehend complex messages in text and those sort of peripheral cues are less salient, Right. Face-to-face communication makes the peripheral cues more salient and uh, makes complex messages harder to convey. And that's why you see on TV advertising, um, if somebody's trying to sell you face cream or something like that, they're going to have somebody who looks like an expert, they're in a lab coat, and they've got a really simple message about how using this face cream does sciencey things to your skin and makes it, your skin look younger. You know, But they're very vague about what it's doing because they're hoping you'll just look at them, they're in a lab, they've got a white coat on, they know what they're talking about right? I don't understand the message, but that's fine. I'm going to go out and buy that face cream because it's got some science stuff in it and that's going to make me look younger, you know, the expert told me, you know, and so face-to-face communication can tend to emphasize um, those sort of stereotypic cues and the more prominent those cues are, the more easily they come to mind. And so that's why, like with when you're thinking about how evidence is presented, you know, sometimes people do telephone links for evidence as well, you know, if you're um, you know, if you've ever been a I don't know if there's anyone listening who's been an expert in a trial, you know, sometimes experts who who can't get to the courtroom will just phone up and do it via telephone. So that takes away a lot of the visual cues to Mm. what the person looks like, you know, which we might use to judge their credibility. And so that sort of mode of presentation can either ramp up or ramp down the effect of those cues. And so it's just worth thinking about when we're designing courtrooms, we've done a little bit of work on architecture of courtrooms, um, how much prominence we're giving to the cues, And, and you know, I think probably the the right mix, you know, is life size would be reasonable because that's what you'd get if somebody turned up in court. Uh, so not sort of like on a huge screen, but kind of, you know, positioning sort of video displays roughly so it looks like people are sitting at tables in the courtroom. And we've done some simulations of this with, with the, um industry partner where we actually took over a courtroom and, you know, put in, video links everywhere and had people sitting in different parts of the courtroom on video link or some in person, you know, and we are able to test you know, this. This was the work on when you're, you know, how is a defendant represented in a courtroom, you know, does their representation in the courtroom bias, how we perceive them. So in Australia, they're often sitting in a dock, you know, which is a separate area in the courtroom uh, away from the jury and away from the legal counsel, you know, and and in a lot of courtrooms, that dock uh, might have glass around it for public safety or for the defendant's safety. And in some courtrooms in New South Wales, those docks are actually built into the wall. And so, like, there's an option to put the defendant behind glass in one wall of the the courtroom. So they're quite separate. And, you know, what we've found when we manipulated personalises, where... doesn't it? it kind, of, oh, it kind
0: does. of says that, you know, they're, they're, it's they're us dangerous. versus him yep. you know, or her. Yep. yeah absolutely
1: you're creating another another Mm -hmm. thing yeah they're not even a person to some extent you know depersonalizes them but it also we've shown it sends a signal you know maybe they're a bit dangerous as well we have to put them behind these structures to protect um the public um so you kind of you know there is a presumption of innocence and here we are is giving an architectural signal that um maybe this person actually has done it and what we found when we sort of systematically you know with lots of different trial jurors uh, and juries run through the simulation um, in an actual courtroom and moving the defendant between different places during a terrorism trial is that uh, the defense seen more negatively when they're either sitting on their own in a glass dock or sitting on their own in an open dock the only time when you don't get that negative perception is when actually sitting at the table with the lawyer so when they're part of proceedings right? And and treated as an equal there. Mm, mm. Um, and that's actually ironically where defendants often sit in American courtrooms is actually at the table with the lawyer. But what you don't see is they're chained to the floor under the table, right? Uh, which is kind of problematic for other reasons. But so when you've got the sort of co-location, you, you don't have those negative perceptions of the defendant based on the fact that they're separate from us. And that works on video as well. So Defendants will sometimes appear via video link from wherever they've been kept in custody, and the lawyer will be in the courtroom. And that's a little bit problematic because it's the same as putting them in a glass dock, you know, in a similar way. You're sending that signal, you know, about yes, um, they're dangerous. They're that's, dangerous, right? Yeah, yeah, separate. And it's super efficient, though, because you don't have to drive them into the courtroom and do all the security around that. So what we've found, though, is if you have the lawyer and the defendant on camera together on the same screen, you get rid of the negative effect. And, you know, so there's ah. things you can do to kind of um, still gain the benefits of why we do it that way, um, but without necessarily prejudicing the trial, you know, presumption of innocence for defendants.
0: It, it's interesting because as you're talking, for me, it's I'm, I'm hearing something similar to the way that we try and do. Uh, psychometric testing. We're trying to do standardization. Like, you know, if we, if we do standardization of screens, uh, you know, a large screen, you know, everyone, every business wants a large billboard versus a small billboard um, because we know that one's much more effective. And, you know, maybe it's because. It takes up more uh, of your uh, visual field. Maybe it goes out and, and activates more of your occipital lobes. Um, you know, it triggers more emotive response. Uh, you know, if, if someone is crying and, and you're more connected because you can see more of it. There's so many things. Obviously, I'm not talking from from a scientific nature, but, you know, uh, assuming, putting, putting um, uh, hypotheses out there. But I could see how... The standardisation approach that uh, is coming up, at least from what you're talking about, is is if the prosecution you know, is all together to go out and have the defendant separate, doesn't standardise it and, and immediately sends a signal that, you know, we will queue to, um, you know, we, we we make assumptions of even, you know, some sort of physical wall and hence this whole concept of, you know, does someone come in, you know, and, and do we support, the, the, the surviving victim by putting them in a video link. Um, we want to go out and assist and help in that way, but can it, could it be potentially detrimental? Um, well, it depends on the size of the screen, depends if they have someone next to them and so on and so forth. And and um, this is so fascinating that, that that how much of the system needs to be reviewed uh, from a psychological perspective to make sure that equity, fairness uh, is, is at least minimised as much as possible.
1: Yeah, you, you don't want to do things that are going to um, undermine the presumption of innocence, but also things that will traumatise mm. witnesses or survivors because, you know, that's not fair either, you know, in and it doesn't do anything for the, you know, for people participating in the criminal justice system if they feel like it's going to be a traumatic experience. So, you know, I think, you know, the message shouldn't be, oh, we've got to get... You know, uh, witnesses to always come in and give their version in court. We need mm. to sort of think through how can we support people with these, you know, these really, you know, they're very positive interventions, you know, allowing this sort of video evidence so people don't have to retell their story over and over. You know, so there's a recent case that's just started up again, I think, in Queensland, and they're going to just replay the videos of, of the survivor's testimony, you know, and so. I think that they're really positive steps, but then how do we, what do we need to do? Do we need to educate jurors about what inferences to not draw from video evidence being used? Do we need to make sure the video display is an appropriate size, you know, so that, you know, like you said, the larger displays, we look at them right? right. They're very attention getting. And we know, you know, that uh, we tend to attribute causation to the things that have the most sort of uh, attention grabbing features in an environment, you know? So if you, like well, it's not the same as a courtroom, but if you look at confession evidence that's video recorded or sorry, interviews that are video recorded, uh there are certain camera angles that if you use them where you only show the person being interviewed versus both the interviewer and the interviewee, you know, in mm-hmm. a like a police interview, it make it leads to more negative perceptions and people don't believe the the defendant, you know, to the same extent because you've got too much perceptual focus just on the person being interviewed. You know, you're not you're not taking into account Um, the behaviour of the person interviewing them, you know. And so it it is important to get those things right so that they're fair, but that we still get the benefits of using those sorts of uh, technologies. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of gains that can be made in in that. And I think also in making sure we're telling juries the right things about, um, you know, not to infer that a, a survivor not turning up to present in court doesn't mean that they're not genuine, you know, which is an old sort of stereotype that if somebody didn't bother to turn up into court and we have to use a video of their evidence, you know, that for some, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not genuine, right? That this is actually the mode of evidence delivery that is normal and expected in these cases. So a bit of the picture is making sure we kind of set expectations with what we say to jurors so they can understand why they're seeing evidence delivered in these different ways. So I think that's the other part of the story that's on the system, you know, and also um, academics to help sort of develop and evaluate those sorts of instructions to make sure they do have the desired effect. But helping people navigate, you know, jurors navigate what is an unusual context for them um, so they know why certain things are happening and they're not jumping to conclusions based on their own sorts of, you know, beliefs about what might be happening.
0: Mm. three things have just come up as you as you speak and the, the first one is even the the uh, uh moderator of volume you know i i watched uh top gun 2 um being a young young gentleman when top uh top gun 1 came out and the first time i watched it the sound was phenomenal and I went back for a second time as other friends wanted to go along, and it was so disappointing. The music, the, you know, the sound quality is much lower. It didn't have the impact, uh, and so even how sound is depending on video link versus in uh, in person could be vastly different. Uh, that's one thing that came to mind. Second one is is that size again. I've been watching some videos on the uh, Twitter files, um, and quite. Comedically, I was sort of laughing um, about any time that one of the presenters was trying to make a point, they would bring out almost like a, you know, those large check, um, uh, uh, check, checkbook cards where people, when you used to write check, they would yep. bring out this big, large one, like when someone wins the lotto. Uh, and it would have, you know, an email on it, but it was so large. And I was just thinking this is that size effect that that it makes something seem like it's bigger rather than just reading it out. They would bring it out, not that anyone would probably even read it out from this ridiculous looking sort of, you know, lotto winning card, but the props were phenomenal um, in, in, in how they were doing this. And I was kind of laughing at just wondering why, but this is making much more sense now having discussed this with you. And the final thing is looking at this, Structural thing around potentially mitigating uh, biases uh, as a systemic sort of um, a, a play that the courts could do to help with maybe psychoed or educating so that we can, as jurors, um, be understanding of of how we're operating or how we're thinking, so that we can kind of at least mitigate some some of that. Because it surprises me still that the, you know the four person has no training or um that we don't help you know to to mitigate these things because it's these are such important things that you know if, if we're going to put people potentially on you know in front of a 10-day trial um and then you know maybe some little bit longer of uh, of you know deliberations and so on at the end maybe we should put them through a day of of um uh you know psychoed or ongoing if there's a uh, professionals that are you know court appointed to go out and be biased uh, sorry uh, to be objective um, my apologies and, and you know maybe you have to police the police but um, to, 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 to be objective so they can help the courts. you know aid the help in in objectivity and you know whatever this possible you know rationality slash objectivity slash you know using evidence to inform a decision um, so there are the three things that came up are there mitigation things that come up that the court's do to try and offset the the items that you've... Um, and I'm I'm assuming you've... You know, this is part of your research and then trying to inform the courts as to how policies and future courts do things.
1: So, yeah, there's certainly guidance for jurors about how to conduct deliberations. Like, the courts have invested quite a bit of effort in putting together handbooks for jurors. Um, but, you know, it's that thing, how do you train somebody to be an effective facilitator? You know, it's probably a, a bit more than a handbook, right? Like, you know, people... <laughs> Um, And, you know, what courts try to do is trade off um, how long they've got people for. You know, jury service, it's an important um, thing that people are asked to do. They're not paid very well to do it. Um, You know, and so uh, there's sort of a, a, a balancing act of trying to, you know, engage people to do jury service. People are kind of juggling all the demands on their lives. So a lot of people try to get out of jury service. I mean, I would encourage anyone who's called up to to actually try and do jury service. It's a really important um, responsibility I think you have if, if you're called up. Uh, but, you know, the courts don't have people for an endless period of time. You know, it's expensive to run trials um, and you don't actually know who's going to be selected onto any single trial. And this this is the challenge where you can have a pool of people called up for potential jury service over a two-week period, they'll get a, a message. It used to be your number got put in a paper and you had to look up each day to see if your number was on for that day and then you had to go into the courtroom and be available. Now I think you get a message. Um, and so you turn up and there might be 150 of you just waiting. Uh, and then uh, when the different courts are ready, you know the, the jury managers or the um, sheriffs will take a selection of people in um a, a range of numbers and then you have a, a selection process in that courtroom. And you might do that three or four times in a morning and then be sent home for the day and not end up on any jury. And then, you know, a week later you get called in to come in for another day as well. And you might do it, you might go through your two weeks and never get selected on a jury. Or on the first day you might end up on a jury and then go through that trial and then end up on the second jury and that's your two weeks jury service. And you might be in in the courts for the whole time. So it's really hard to know how you could train people because you don't know who's going to get selected. Um, yeah. So it's kind of you have to try and capture everyone by giving everybody the handbook. And I think that's kind of like the satisficing solution that's about the only kind of practical one um, at that point, you know, unless, you know, you were willing to devote more time once people have been selected to do a bit of training. But I can tell you it's super expensive per day. To run a trial so it's i think it's something like fifty thousand dollars a day or something crazy like that for a typical you know trial you know not not a high, high profile case or anything like that and so yeah you know, if you say let's devote half a day to training a, a four person everyone has to wait because you've got to wait till everyone's selected um for half a day that's pretty expensive so you know, it's working out. What's the right balance of mm-hmm. providing support to jurors in a way that doesn't slow down, you know, and become very expensive? Because already, the the issue is getting through the the cases. You know, there's a lot of demands on the courts to um, meet the you know the needs of how many cases need to be tried. So, um, the other way to do it is you know you can use those booklets but also to provide for the judge to provide education as part of the instructions to jurors and that's an area that there's been a bit of work on and it's about sort of identifying the issues as they arise in a case and then providing the appropriate instructions to help jurors sort of work through those issues and that might be for example how children's memory works so that jurors have correct information to understand when children are reliable you know and when they're going to give accurate testimony which turns out to be pretty much all the time like kids are actually pretty good at that you know but the stereotype is you know that there's big challenges with children's memory but it's just inaccurate and so some model you know instructions have been tested and research and you know they've been shown to be helpful um other you know new south wales recently introduced um instructions around consent and and how to interpret you know victim emotion and things like that unfortunately you know some of the research on that says those sorts of instructions might not always be effective. And so it's, we've got to really make sure that if we are going to give instructions, um, A, that they're they're simple because a lot of instructions are not written to help jurors. Okay, So there was a big review of instructions down in Victoria a little while ago because for some, you know, three-day trials, there would be two days of instructions and summary at the end of it. So half the time would be giving jurors instructions. And the reason why that happened is because one of the functions of instructions is to help jurors. The other function is to protect the jury verdict against appeal. And so there's this notion that if as long as the correct instructions were given, um, the jury verdict is sound. And so what practice started to become was let's make sure we give every instruction that could be relevant so there's no basis for appeal because really misinstruction is one of the few things um, grounds for appeal in a jury trial because the jury doesn't write out its reasons, so it's you can really only go on how the judges conducted the trial, and so the judges would sort of proactively try to defend the verdict because of the expense and time put into a jury trial by giving the jury a whole range of instructions, some of them which didn't even apply to the case because certain you know offences might not have actually been. Uh, alleged. Like sometimes you you would allege a sort of a constellation of offences, you know, like murder and manslaughter, um, depending on whether intent. You know, you think you can improve intent or not. But you know, a prosecutor might decide to just go with murder, uh, but the judge might give instructions about manslaughter as well. You know, and so what it does is creates confusion for the jury because there's all this information that's actually not strictly relevant for the decision they've got to make, but it protects the decision against appeal. So. People have kind of moved on a little bit from that, uh, but there's still a tendency for some instructions to use, um, how could I say it delicately, legal type language rather than plain language that most people would understand. And, and the research on uh, the complexity of the language and concepts is pretty clear. So you need to be able to make instructions conceptually simple for them to be effective. Otherwise, people are not going to be able to follow the instructions um, accurately. And then there's the other bit with instructions, it's not just comprehension. Even if people can comprehend them and they're willing to apply them, uh, sometimes people might not be able to. So one of one of the instructions about biases is to you know, sometimes people will be asked to just ignore certain information or to put all their biases aside in arriving at a decision. And those sorts of suppression instructions psychologically are really hard for people to do, uh, because to suppress something you have to remember what it is, you have to monitor to make sure that you're not relying on it. So if if you tell me to, you know, forget about that news article that was negative, I have to remember that there was a news article that there was negative to make sure I'm not recalling that there was a new news article that there was negative. I have to monitor uh, my memory, and so that actually makes it much more accessible and it can actually have a rebound effect where I'm over influenced by the thing I was told to ignore. There are strategies you can use in terms of um, giving people a reason for why you would ignore something which discounts the validity of the thing. That tends to be more effective. So there is a way to give instructions that map onto people's sort of psychological processes that make them more effective. And we only know how to do those things from research. because it's hard to tell from real trials whether an instruction's been effective.
0: Can you talk through some of that 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 research that you know the research that is uh, you know highlighted for you as, as you know fairly groundbreaking or has got really good methodology the research that you've done um, you know how how you put that together i know this is quite broad but i'm interested in in you know uh how do we do this because this is such an important you know, space uh, because it is extremely informative of what occurs in a courtroom and how people are treated when they are you know, accused or when someone is is um you know a victim of some 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 crime um and in other scenarios as well so what are the the, the some of the research um methodologies that you've uh, uh, done yourself and, and and others that you're impressed by um, and how they shaped and informed the legal system?
1: So um, in most jurisdictions, it's really hard to do actual research with jurors um, because there's uh, the jury act sort of prohibits asking jurors about what happened in deliberations. Um, and, you know, quite rightly so. You no know, jury deliberation, you know, should be, protected so that people feel like they can have a robust discussion. But it does make it hard to sort of figure out what happened and unpack the sorts of things that might influence them. So there's not, that-
0: it, it, no one's allowed to have post conversation about what occurred in that room. I mean, there's almost like a, for lack of a better word, but a gag order of saying to protect everyone um, and not put, I suppose the legal system in question Um you, you're free to speak openly and freely here, and that remains in confidence. Um, that, that's, it's understood that it won't be discussed after the trial ends. Is that, is that what you mean? So there's
1: a, yeah, there's a general prohibition on approaching jurors to ask them about what happened. So a juror okay. could come to you and, and talk to you about what happened, but you couldn't put a call out and say, hey, I want to talk to jurors and ask you about what happened in your trial. Like that would okay. be a breach of a lot of the jury acts around Australia. What What you have to do, Um, if you want to talk to jurors about their experiences is you have to get the approval of the courts and, and, and essentially I think it ends up going to the attorney general. Uh, So there's sort of a complex process and, you know, we've done that a couple of times where we have actually been given permission um, to survey jurors, but it's always about a limited uh, range of topics you can ask. So you can't ask about the verdict, You can't ask about um, was there disagreement, you know, in reaching the verdict or, you know, what they thought about the verdict. But you can ask them about, I mean, some people have done research on jurors' experiences, you know, how stressful it was or, you know, what were the facilities like, like all of those sorts of things. We've asked them about, um, you know, what they thought about the expert evidence, how, you know, how well was it presented. We've asked them about um, how strong they thought the case was. You know, so all these sorts of ways of, trying to understand the things that influence them with within the bounds of what we're allowed to ask. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of get a limited window into it. It's really valuable to do that research, but, you know, there are some sort of bumper bars up around the sorts of topics you can ask um, quite rightly. And the other, the other problem is with real trials, there's each trial has got its own particular context and you can't, sort of at the end of it say, all right, well, that was interesting. Now the defendant was male. Let's rewind. Let's run the trial again with a female defendant and see what happens because we've got a hypothesis about um, how people think about violent behavior as a function of gender. Right. So you can't do that with a real trial. So what happens with with studying real jurors is you'll learn a lot about a limited set of topics about this specific case. And that's that's kind of an important part of the research spectrum. The other bit is when you wanna start to figure out what's affecting um, how people see a case, so what's influencing them, and whether you can come up with an intervention to sort of change the way people see things because you've identified something problematic, you know, like the effect of a stereotype, for example, or some kind of decision cue or heuristic. So the way to do that is you need to use a different research method, and typically that'll be done um, using an experiment. And so that means you sort of need to be able to recreate a case multiple times and run it with different things in it. And so you can't do that with a real case. So case study research and actual jury research can help inform what you might sort of investigate in an experiment. So if we identify jurors sort of having particular challenges with expert testimony, you know, they're finding the language complex or, you know, the form of presentation, we might then start to generate some theories about what's going on. And so then we would decide, well, let's test those theories by doing an experiment. And, and so we would set up a situation where we try and simulate a trial. Now, I've said before, a trial might go for five days or something like that and cost sort of $50,000 a day or something, you know, it's super expensive. Um, we haven't got the resources to do that. And we can't get research participants to give us five days of their time, right? So we've got a couple of options. We have to make some choices about how important realism matters and what sort of realism matters, right? Does it? Do they need to have a whole case or do they just need uh, an expert's testimony, you know, just what the expert says? Can we just give them that and ask them about that? Can we give them a summary of what the expert says? Do we need a photo of the expert or do we need a video of somebody pretending to be the expert? Now, the challenge is the more realistic you make it, you get back to the problems with the real cases, right? So if you have a video of an expert, we now have to be worried about what do they look like? Are there any cues that, about what they look like that are going to interfere with our ability to test our predictions? Mm.
0: And so sometimes making any variables rather than trying to maintain it. controls. Yeah, so that's that, the trade-off
1: that. of realism and control. Mm-hmm. And so... The way we tend to think about it, or or, in my research group, it's not about um, realism, you know, as in how similar is it to an actual trial. We think about it in terms of psychological realism. How much are you recreating the same experience that you're trying to understand of a real trial? And so that might be replicating the sort of complexity in the decision or replicating the, the, you know, the challenge with the complex language an expert uses. So not worrying about this, you're not showing them a video of an actual trial. So you pick the level of realism that that's suitable. So if you're interested in studying, let's say the effect of a defendant appearing via video link, you can't necessarily do that with a written scenario. You probably need to actually put people in a real courtroom, you mm-hmm. know, and we've done that. So the doc research I was telling you about, we actually co-opted um, a court a courtroom and Penrith and You know, that was organized by one of my collaborators and, you know, we ran uh, a trial multiple times, you know, over the course of a couple of days, you know, to get lots of, lots of examples of juries going through under different conditions, you know, and so that was a big effort and, um, but it was worth it because of the question we're looking at. But if we're looking at, for example. It's very
0: impressive, I must say. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, all credit to my collaborators on that one. You know, they did the heavy lifting. Um, but, you know, the, but another, you know, if we're looking at expert testimony, we might just um, have a, a written, you know, 10 page written excerpt of the testimony and give that to people and vary, vary, for example, the name of the expert to manipulate gender. So we can get around using a photo and we just manipulate the name. So now we know if we get a difference, it really is to do with the gender. It's not just that that one woman who we happen to use in the photo is viewed differently from the one man, right? Like, so to rule out the effect of any particular photo of a man and woman, we'd actually have to probably get like 20 photos of men, 20 photos of women, randomize them all. And so it becomes more complex and we don't oh. gain much. So the first step would be just to use names and see if there's an effect there. And if there is, it says, you know, there's this big gendered effect because all you have to do is change the name. And this is actually what we find. If you change the name of the expert who gives you know, complex testimony, people believe it more when it's coming from a man than a woman, right? Because we have gendered expectations around language. You know, we don't expect women to use wow. complex language, which is really old-fashioned, terrible stereotype. Whereas men, it's more acceptable to kind of use jargony technical language because we kind of have a stereotype. There sort of the roles that men take, right? And so that's all you have to do is change the name of the expert and you get greater damage awards. People believe the testimony more if it comes from a man, Uh, than a woman for complex testimony. And so, you know, you you can be pretty confident that that's what's going on because we've only varied one thing. We've given people exactly the same thing and we've only varied one thing. But the problem is when you go to practitioners, you know, the courts and say, look at what we've found, all we did is change the name uh, and we get this big effect on expert testimony. You've got some issues with gendered stereotypes and expert testimony. The reaction you know, quite understandably, is and that looks nothing like a trial. You know, and that's that's got no relevance to what we do in court. In court, an expert standing there in front of them, you know, and there's leading questions, there's questions from the barrister, and, you know, there's jurors get to talk to each other, there's deliberation. That's how they help understand the testimony. You know, and all those things are true. True. Sure. But sure. The issue is what we've done is separated out the language complexity as the single thing we tested in that experiment to try and look at causal relationships. So the only thing we can do then is do other research, on research, looking at does how you simulate trials matter for what you find? Like does the method of research have an effect? And a whole bunch of people who are super smart have done this over many years and um, they've done it through experiments. They've done it through meta-analyses and a meta-analysis is where you look at pre-existing yes. research and you kind of like aggregate the findings over like a couple of hundred studies. And then you're able to look at systematic differences in the research and then look for systematic changes as a function of whatever the variable is you're interested in. So in our case, it would be mode of simulation used in the research.
0: And that's such important research because that's actually asking the question of can the courts continue to dismiss or discount our research? You know, we're, we're actually researching our research in, in many ways as to whether it applies um, because you know, there's, there's, there's no point if it's not going to be adopted. We have to go out and, and, and be robust like, you know, meta analyses to go out and say, yeah, there's something actually in here even though it, you know, well, both things can be right. You know, it it doesn't have all of the features. There are a lot more extraneous variables. Having said that, it still does apply that they are both true. They can both yep. be true at the same that's, time.
1: That's exactly right. And um, you know, there's the I don't think we'd ever get to the point where you could have a fully realistic trial and be able to be confident about what the mechanism is because you just can't have that level of control. Like you would learn a lot about a particular trial, but then the trial's over and we have no idea whether what happened in that trial applies to the next trial. Yes. Because it's going to be a completely different context. And so we've got to get rid of, you know, all those contextual variations and get to the fundamental principles. And that's what the um, systematic research lets you do. So the challenge is, like you said, how do you convince people? You know, and those meta-analyses are pretty convincing. They kind of suggest... Actually, it doesn't make a lot of difference how you simulate things. You know, there there's some issues around, uh, and actually the participants don't matter that much either whether you use jury eligible people or students. Like That's been another big challenge as well because most research is done on students for convenience. You know, it doesn't make a massive difference to what you find. Um, there's a little bit of evidence that consequentiality, so, you know, what you associate with the outcome, you know, somebody going to jail versus you know, I'm doing my research study, I get my credit at the end of it. You know, the, the outcome of participating is very different. Um, sure. We don't know enough about that yet. But, you know, there's lots of anecdotal evidence that, uh, real jurors don't seem to be, you know, highly motivated by the consequentiality. You know, there's examples of jurors doing Sudoku while they're listening to the evidence or watching DVD players, you know, behind the barrier, you know, watching Little Britain on, on a DVD while they're listening to the evidence. Like there's all these examples, you know, of jurors falling asleep where it's hard work, right? Yeah, you know, it's a long process of sitting there listening to stuff and people's motivation levels fall off. And so I'm kind of, you know, I think the the idea that jurors are going to be way more motivated than research participants uh, is a nice idea. Uh, but whether, in fact, it's true, that's a question that's not really... We don't have a good answer for that yet. So, you know, on the whole, I would be reasonably confident about making some general statements about, you know, translating from research to practice. The trick is how do you bring along people who might not have a training in psychological research that, who understand, you know, why those sorts of decisions are made. And I think that's where you kind of get into a bit of a um, persuasion effort where, you know, part of that is doing the work to work with stakeholders, you know, from across the criminal justice system and make sure you have a blend of research methods where you can do experiments but also do the much more realistic stuff and then link it to what's actually happening in real cases to show the whole picture say, so, yes, we find this thing in experiments. Uh, I acknowledge your concerns about the realism, although research says maybe they're not so problematic. But even when we look at case file research, we get a very similar finding, even though we can't explain the mechanism, um, the, the experiments help us understand the mechanism that might be going on in the in the actual cases. And so you kind of need to sort of meet people, I think, with where their experience is um, and you know, help sort of make that link between the experimental research and translate that into practice for people.
0: How open is the legal system to, you know, the research that you're doing? Are they, uh, you know, quite concerned because it, you know, creates change or it puts into question how things have been done in the past? Are they kind of open-minded and saying, yes, we're quite interested in improving our system and, and open-minded to, um, yeah, continuing to improve uh, outcomes. You know, not not being biased. Just looking at what is supposed to be, you know, uh, held in the highest of regard of objectivity, and you know, a system that continues to uphold those the, the, those values. Um, do you get pushback? Uh, um, you know, what 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 biases are you seeing in 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 the space?
1: Um, well, I mean, there, there is an understandable um. Conservatives is the wrong word, but like the legal system sort of works on precedent and, you know, the long history of decision making. And, and I think that's for a very good reason. Um, but also like the legal system is made up of a, a very diverse range of people who are, have got different opinions about things. You know, there's huge disagreement about things like the jury system and and that. And, you know, I've had a lot of positive interactions with um, judges, you know, very senior people in the legal system who are very interested in learning about this and changing practice to align with what we know from the evidence Um, you know and judges conferences you know often engage with these issues law reform commissions have been very much on the front foot uh, in terms of thinking about these things so you know the victorian law reform commission um, did the review of jury directions a while ago and looked at a lot of the psychological research on directions and used that to inform their recommendations um they recently did one on actually not that recently a couple of years ago now on jury selection and engaged with all the research on jury selection um the uh the other i mean the other issues around more general issue of biases um the australian law reform commission just recently did um a whole review of uh, judicial impartiality which is sort of Engaging with the issue of the extent to which judges can be impartial in their decision making and what are the sorts of risks associated with judges' decisions. And they were really open in engaging with researchers um, and seeking input and sort of working through the issues. Um, anyone who's interested can get the, their report off the Australian the Law Reform Commission website. Um, and they kind of just sort of canvas research and expert opinion on impartiality and so and you know kind of arrive at the position a lot of the things we've been talking about today you know there are these sorts of biases that everyone has and it's really we just need to be thinking about the sorts of decisions we're asking people to make and making sure we structure them in a way that uh helps people make good decisions you know so you know there is really good engagement i think um you know at some really sort of key points um so i think people are open to hearing about it uh, obviously you know, it's, it's kind of a big ship to turn in the ocean. You know, there's a lot of, lot of players. And so it it does take a little while for practice to change. Um, but you know, perhaps that's reasonable, you know, that there's not sort of wild swings in practice. Mm. Um, you know, I think it that's okay. I think that's actually a good thing. So it's really just keeping that conversation going. You're always going to get people asking you, but you know, How can you be sure about that? Or, you know, my experience is different, you know, because people do have a lot of experience, you know, and they feel like, for example, that jurors understand directions where they feel like jurors do a good job. And, you know, part of that is because, um, you know, for people in the courtroom, jurors look like they're doing a good job, like they look like they're attentive because there's strong social pressure to look like you're following what people are saying. You know, it's rude to fall asleep when somebody's talking to you, you know. But then it's just about having that conversation about, well, what, you know, let's, you know, look at some examples where you think, you know, that might not be the case or what leads you to that. And then linking that to the research evidence and just having a conversation with people. So I think there's probably very few people who are completely ideologically opposed to research. Um, but, you know, it is, you know, sometimes it's not a, a comfortable space for people because it's not what they're trained in. Um And so I think, you know, it can take a bit of conversation to sort of, um, you know, get on the same page about, you know, what the issues are and and what are good ways to address them. You know, there's a there can be a sense, and I think it's probably the same, you know, as an academic, you know, when you have people come and tell you how you should be teaching your course, you know, it's a bit like, well, I've been teaching this for ages. I know how to do it. And I know my students learn, you know, it's a bit like, well, who are you to come and tell me, you know, what to do? And i you know that that's hard to argue with, right? So a threat to...
0: creates a, a a an immediate response to defensiveness, yep. and 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 so a threat of, hey, we just want to look at this is you know quite concerning. You know, uh, just to even look at it, you know, which which um you know has its own challenges, and obviously natural biases there as well. A uh, couple more questions because I am now mindful of our proper time. Yep. Um, obviously you're a professor and associate dean academic at uq um you know what would you like to see from all of your experience and research for the future in this in this area about how do we you know work uh you know with the legal system and and, and, and psychology you know combined and obviously you know scientific method to you know what areas should we be looking at to focus on you know and, and, and improve uh well i think
1: i mean it's kind of just following on from what we're talking about before but i just just think sort of having an open collaboration you know just being data driven you know like i'm not an expert on the legal system i'm not a lawyer right and i've never finished my law degree i've never practiced as a lawyer so you know it takes expertise from the legal system but also from research uh to work together to help sort of meet the challenge of how do we support people to make decisions and so i guess that would be the one thing you'd sort of hope for and part of that is through education you know um and you know, we've made a an online MOOC about the psychology of criminal justice that people can do on the edX platform um and part of that is also just sort of you know getting out there and engaging with people you know talking to people about research, you know going up you know speaking at conferences, going to meetings all of that and I think that would be the ultimate goal for me, like there's particular research questions I think I'm keenly motivated to sort of advance or you know research agendas you know in terms of um you know that making sure that you know victim survivors get a fair go you know because they're not represented in cases you know they're, they're treated as a witness but that they actually get a fair go and they're not sort of evaluated unfairly based on stereotypes you know you know i'm keen to see that kind of specific outcome but i think the more general principle that um things are just based on research evidence just like we want trials to be based on the evidence you know so we should be making decisions around how we do that, run the criminal justice system based on evidence which is really the same principle that the law wants as well for its own decisions you know so that would be the ultimate goal for me is that open collaboration and and being open to research guiding practice
0: i think it's one of the 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 most important parts of you know collaborating is that there's an openness from from both because even science has its extreme limitations you know we, if we go in and we want to demonstrate and prove something we we can fudge the data we can go out and you know uh try and create it in in, in a particular way to to you know make something sound sexy and interesting and get a publication and and, and likewise um you know uh, and you know there there should be natural hesitations around around that as well because you know if the, the legal system is going to open itself up. It needs to also have a great trust that, you know, really good thorough um, you know, research looks at it, you know, that's looking to advance, you know, not, not criticise and be, be you know, accusatory, but advance and, and support, whether it's, you know, victims, whether it's defendants, whether it's the, the lawyers in the space, whether it's family members of, of all of those people who are looked up, the community, the outcome, so on. You know, I I think you know the the, the data driven space as, as it is in psychology and you know, truth be told in everything else that I think has advanced immensely. Um, you know, uh, is 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 the key. So I'd have to you know agree with that as well. And and that really I think comes down to relationships that you know yeah, can absolutely. can researchers um, you know connect with their fellow colleagues in 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 um, you know as professionals. To go out and say we're really curious and this is really interesting and we, we both want the same you know and can you open up your system a little bit more and allow us to you know with, with reasonable provisions, like you know to, to inform and assist and guide and help like when we write you know i know that whenever we write a a report for, for the court you know you have to go out and you know, write that you know, very particular phrase that you're you're doing it in an objective manner to to inform and support the court. You know, to 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 assist the court, not you know in any other any other means. And that I think it's a very powerful paragraph, and it should be on every document because it reminds everyone that if you're the author of this, you know, what are you authoring and for what purpose? And, and so I think it's a, a beautiful way. For example, as a one small reminder of many, as to what are, what we're trying to do. To we're trying to assist the court. Um, Rather than you know, you know, potentially advocate and have our own biases and all sorts of things that psychologists get caught up in as well because we're human. And I think
1: you mentioned a a really important bit in there around you know our own obligation to be open and open up. Um, And you're right. Like I think you know psychology has shone a light on some poor practices and research. Um, You know, they've been difficult you know stories to hear, and it's you know certainly been. Know, a bit of a difficult reckoning about some of the research practices in psychology over the last five to 10 years uh, you know, with, you know, people chasing publications with sort of flashy effects and, you know, motivated data analysis that really capitalized on, you know, type one error rates and, you know, poor research practices. And so, you know, I think, you know, if you're going to, you know, ask people to collaborate with you, we've also got an obligation to be open about what we're doing and i think be realistic about the limits of of research but also be you know transparent in what we're doing so sharing data you know committing to predictions and research questions and sharing things in an open way that other people can access for example on open science platforms you know and i think i think that is a you know big way to restoring some credibility and trust to research is to you know engage in those open research practices and the scientific method you know i think It's okay when you do research to be wrong about what your predictions are. You know, that's how you learn more. And so I think we shouldn't shy away from, you know, committing to what we thought before doing research and then evaluating, you know, how did we go, you know, in a transparent way and not sort of presenting motivated research. Because I think that's when motivated research may as well just be an opinion because yes. it's actually not based on the evidence, just write an opinion piece, you know. So, but if you're going to go to the effort to collect data, do it in a way where there's evidentiary value to the data that you're collecting. And and that comes about from using sort of open science methodology where you're committing to positions, sharing the data so other people can verify your analyses, you know, committing to analysis plans so that, you know, all those researcher degrees of freedom are controlled for. And, you know, there's no kind of, Saying, oh, that's what I predicted all along, you know, even though, because the data didn't quite work out as you're expecting, you know. So I think if we do that, that can help part of that sort of trust building and openness, you know, when we're collaborating with people.
0: It's almost like, you know, allowing our fellow researchers and academics to be the jury of our uh, Pretty much of it. our research because that that's the scientific method. It says we're, we're open. We, we give all the evidence. We demonstrate our methodology, our statistical analyses. Yep. You know how we did it because you know sometimes it's difficult and it's not going to be as robust because there are constraints and and that's fine. That goes in the discussion and how do we you know improve things um, and maybe the next person can can follow on from that or if we get the next grant we can continue to do that. Um, but it does you know mean that we're we're advancing our knowledge in that one final uh, uh item uh, for you is where can people find out more you know about this topic obviously you know this is something that you're extremely well read in and and, and you you know have lot, lot, lots of your own research and like where can people find out more and and you know there might be also some students that are Uh, eager to follow this as well so how can they maybe even reach out and get in touch
1: so um yeah like if people just want to learn more about it we we talk about a lot of this research in in the online course i mentioned before so on the edx.com i think it's not edx.org platform sorry um you can search for a course called the psychology of criminal justice um the course code is crime 101x uh so that's a course where we kind of we we filmed uh uh uh, fictional trial, it was a murder case and we followed it all the way from the investigation through to the jury trial and so we had actors play all the roles, and had a film crew. We broke it up into eight episodes, and so then we talk about what's going on in each of the episodes, and we relate the research to what's happening in the trial. So the profiling, you know, the the investigation, the interviews, uh, the confession. Um, we talk about evidence at the trial, and then we get to see a jury deliberate and arrive at a verdict. So we talk about all of these. A lot of the things we've talked about today sort of come up in that in that course. So anyone can go on there and audit it uh, if they want to. Um, the we also have sort of a more general um, psychology course where we talk about sort of social perception and biases more generally. Uh, that's on the same edX.org platform. Uh, that's uh, Psych Ten, th- the Psych Ten Thirty uh, X series. If you search for that under Introduction to Psychology, And is that uh, P S Y C? It is out of yes. H. Yeah, yeah. P S Y C um... Ten Thirty.
0: I sort of got on my notes I just want to make yeah. sure that it's great because yep. yep,
1: yep. uh, and you know you can do we cover a whole range of things in that course, but there's one particularly on social psychology, including sort of social perception and stereotypes. Uh, so we talk about a lot of those issues there as well. Um, you know and then you know I've got a, a webpage at the University of Queensland. Um, if you sort of Google my name and put the University of Queensland, it'll take you to my researcher profile uh, which will have links to
0: some of the research I've been doing. Fantastic! And what is your latest research? What are you doing at the moment?
1: Well, we're, we're coming to uh, we're sort of in the third and final year of a large-scale project with a police service where we've been revisiting their training, um, and we've sort of been evaluating the effectiveness of uh, some training packages we developed with them. And so that's the the sort of hot topic research we've been doing at the moment, sort of applying what we know about misconceptions and stereotypes, and also learning theory to try and make training more engaging and effective for people um, and to help them sort of think, um, you know, in a more evidence-based way and a more victim-centric way as well.
0: That's really brilliant. Um, look, I, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate your, your, your time and expertise and, you know, appreciate the work that you do. I, I think, you know, uh, this topic really needs um, and, and deserves a whole lot more, Attention from people like yourself who are clearly passionate about, you know, informing good practice, uh, you know, from from all levels, you know, uh, from an unbiased perspective of saying, how can we even just examine the the architecture? How do we examine how um, you know, the presentation of evidence is is provided? How can a defence, you know, be be better? How can jurors be better informed? How can you know prosecutors be respectful of? of uh you know people how, how can we be more human while also maintaining you know what the legal system is intending you know, and trying to do you know with, with great effort and so um, really appreciate your work and and thank you for your time today it's been you know, amazing for me i've learned immensely uh yeah you know, we i i have a whole lot of preconceived ideas about what what the law is and, and how psychology plays in. the truth is I know nothing. Um, I'm definitely more informed after after today. Um, and I'm sure our listeners you know, will be as well. So yeah, thanks again, Blake.
1: Thanks very much. Appreciate the invitation.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you